You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies! Kane's World, Kane's World, party time, excellent. <laughs> uh, that's chauffeur Ben there. Super clever, Ben. I am that's Nathan, I am. your humble and obedient host. That's Jake over there, Pastor Jacob What's Metzel. Up? And Ben, why were you singing that little ditty that you made up all by yourself and uh, wasn't yeah, a reference to anything? Who knows where I got it from? Uh, I, because we're going to talk about, we're going to watch Citizen Kane and talk about it today. Th- that's right. We're on our way to the Sandyville Movie Palace and just went past the house with the chickens. Yeah. So let's get right into it, boys. You want to get right into it? Yeah, let's do it. Definitely. All right. Let's talk about Citizen Kane, a movie widely on many of your critics' polls and your informal polls and your formal polls and your stats and everything considered to be the greatest movie of all time. It came out in 1941, and it is a, it is a movie of mystery, Ben. It is a movie of mystery. A movie and... of mystery. Yes. Question, Ben. If mm-hmm. they had solved the Jack Ripper case, mm-hmm. do you think that you would have heard about Jack the Ripper? Well, it's a good question, Nathan. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe not. I submit to you that you would not have. Many a person mm. has stabbed five people or done worse, and you don't know their names. That's but true. But you know about Jack the Ripper, and you know about Jack the Ripper because the mystery was never solved. Oh, that's Pe- right. People love mystery stories, and therein lies the fascination. I submit to you. That's why one of the reasons why people love Citizen Kane. You start with the... The movie itself, which is in fact a mystery story. It's the mystery of who was Citizen Kane and do we, don't we ever really find out the answer? Well, I'll leave that to us to decide or to you to decide after you watch the movie with us, dear listener. It's also the mystery of what is Rosebud? What is Rosebud? Yes, there's the Rosebud. surface mystery, but of course the deeper mystery the is... metaphorical mystery. It's a metaphor for who is Citizen Kane. And Citizen Kane, of course, the, the original name for the screenplay was the American. Citizen Kane is the quintessentially 20th century American man. So his mystery is kind of like... I mean, not to be too deep about this, but his mystery is like our mystery. Maybe if we can solve the mystery of Citizen Kane, we can solve the mystery of America in the 20th century ourselves. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that's true or not, but that's, you yeah, know. That's pretty cool. Sounds really cool. Yeah, anyway. it sounds really it sounds cool. Cool idea. Yeah. yeah. He's the American, though. He came from nothing. He was given extraordinary gifts. It's a quintessentially American tale. Came from nothing, was given extraordinary gifts. Might have used them, might have squandered them. Fell from grace. It's like the American story. Plus, his, his life was tied to media. He shaped it. It shaped him. There's a reason that this story is still resonant. You think Bill Gates. You think Walt Disney. Of course, you think Steve, Steve Jobs. Jobs. It's their story. It's it's like the American myth or one of the Amer- great American myths. Uh, plus, there's... So that's Citizen Kane. That's the... If you haven't watched it, that's the reason to watch it, maybe. That's that's what it's about, and that's why it's still exciting and why people still connect to it, I think. Or, or one of the reasons. We'll talk about several of the reasons why that is. There's also the mystery story that is the making of the film, the mystery of Orson Welles, who is a figure very much like Citizen Kane. He came from nothing, and he has that same sort of trajectory. He came from nothing. He had an alcoholic father. His father they, they were pretty well to do, actually. His father invented a bicycle lamp, which is just what it sounds like, a lighting device for a bicycle, and, and really squandered away his wealth. Orson Welles sort of grew up when he was younger. They had a little bit more, but he basically came from nothing. He was given extraordinary gifts. He was a child prodigy. He bluffed his way onto stage. Oh, what's the name of the city in Ireland? In Dublin, when he he was just a teenager. And then came back here, joined the Federal Theater Project, which was a FDR-funded theatrical thing, part of the New Deal. Uh, 
you know, as FDR was giving people new jobs and everything like that, there was this federal theater program, and Orson Welles took it over, and he did all these extraordinary things. He became uh, known as kind of a prodigy, this really young man who was breaking the mold, and he did something called Voodoo Macbeth. It wasn't actually called Voodoo Macbeth, but he became known as Macbeth, as Voodoo Macbeth, because it was a staging of Macbeth where... It was an all-black cast of, I think, 150 people, opened in Harlem, and it was a big deal. So he's just, oh, what would you say? He's he's a provocateur. He's a showman. He knows how to get people's attention. Eventually moved from the Federal Theater Project to the Mercury Theater, and the most famous thing that they did radio, they did actual theater. The most famous thing that they did, which I'm sure everyone's heard of, is their 1938 broadcast of War of the Worlds, which... There's a lot of... One of the reasons that I say Orson Welles, like Citizen Kane, his life is a bit of a mystery is because there's just so much anecdotal stuff and lore and stories. And much like Citizen Kane, it's really hard to figure out exactly who the man was looking at. You know, people will say he was the most terrible, tyrannical, over-the-top person. People will say he was actually quite kind. People... It really is a lot like Citizen Kane. And and the legend of something like War of the Worlds, which apparently everyone took really seriously, and they heard this broadcast, which was done just like a real news broadcast, and there were people that thought that the world was being taken over by the Martians. Who knows exactly? I, I tend to think Probably that story is a little bit exaggerated, but it's certainly a good tale. And certainly War of the Worlds did one way or another make a huge splash. And I don't know, for all I know, maybe people did take it completely seriously. They certainly hadn't ever heard anything like it. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Ah! Oh, the whole field's by the woods. The fires are... Certainly, it's the one thing that you could expect people to know Orson Welles for, though. Right. I had a conversation about this just the other day. I was at the barber shop, and for whatever reason, she was talking about the new season. Oh, it was because we were talking about the new season of To Make a Murderer, mm-hmm. which led to a conversation about Serial, which she had never heard of. We just started talking about radio drama... And stuff like that. She's like, oh, that sounds like old time right. radio drama stuff. I was like, yeah, Orson Welles. She's like, yeah, War of the Worlds. And then we had a conversation about whether or not, she was like, I'm not sure that it's possible that everybody really, you know, believed what they said. Well, is that, yeah, that's that's funny. Yeah, I think it's the first thing I knew about Orson Welles now that you mention it. Me so, too. Yeah, he did a War of the Worlds broadcast and the legend is that everyone just thought that the world was coming to an end. And I'm yep. sure in some sense that's exaggerated. Either way, it made a big splash, and it got him a contract with RKO, film production company, which was looking to... They're pretty famous for things like King Kong, and they were one of the smaller studios, actually, at the time. But they were looking to move into doing more artistic, ambitious projects. So they sign with this this prodigy, this young genius, and they give him contract like no one ever had gotten before. This legendary thing where he had control like no sound director. Somebody like Chaplin... Some, some of the famous silent guys, D.W. Griffith, would have had that kind of control over every aspect of filmmaking. And Final Cut, which means the studio doesn't get to mandate what the movie, you know, as long as he can bring it in by a certain budget, he can do whatever he wants. So it's this 
legendary awesome contract that they gave him exactly like citizen kane exactly like you know the american he's given these great gifts and then you have to decide did he use them well or did he squander them because what he did is he decided to take on well this is another thing that's people have different opinions on but it seems pretty clear watching citizen kane that he decided to take on william randolph hearst this 24 year old kid decides to take on the media baron the one of the most powerful men in america and make him look like a fool i mean and that's all the movie is it's really hearst was this famous this guy he basically with pulitzer he invented yellow journalism he invented big headlines he his his story is very much like citizen kane he had a lover that he kept in a big mansion called Sam San Simeon with the bric-a-brac of his life. And they would throw these lavish parties, you know, the part where Kane says, some of the guests may still be in the West Wing. That was completely Hearst's life. The big difference is that Hearst's lover actually was a little bit talented, unlike uh, Susan Alexander. In <laughs> but you can see even how Wells is being more nasty because Marion Davies, the actress, yep. I've seen her and stuff. She's good. To, to actually have her played as Susan Alexander, the talentless hack that the stagehand is holding his nose as she tries to sing the operetta or whatever. It's a pretty low blow on, on, on Wells's part. Yeah, maybe maybe the audience can tell we've seen this before. We're going to watch it again at the same yes, film movie palace. This is it's probably good to say. Very true, Ben. Yes, I've, I've seen this movie. Maybe this might have been my... I don't want to exaggerate 15th viewing or something like that. I love yeah. this movie. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. So he goes after Hearst, portrays him as a decrepit old man who squandered everything and with a talentless lover and all this kind of stuff. And just and there's a lot of different stories and legends, again, just like Citizen Kane, about whether Hearst saw the movie, whether Hearst never saw the movie, whether Hearst liked the movie, whether Hearst. But what we do know is that Hearst's people waged a vicious war. And it was the end, basically, it destroyed Orson Welles' career. At, at age 25, he makes a movie that the critics liked, but that didn't really get a proper release at the time. The executives, Louis B. Mayer, uh, one, of the, one of the Hollywood big shots, actually tried to buy the negative, offered RKO, like, here's the money to, co- to, to cover the making of the film, and then some. So you, give it, you can give it to me, and I'll burn it. And the reason he wanted <laughs> to do that was because he did not want Hearst's wrath to come down on the whole Hollywood industry, which is what they were afraid of. So the movie wasn't allowed to be advertised in Hearst Papers, which is kind of like saying, well, you really can't imagine, you know, there were only so many media conglomerates at the time, you know, these days. Like if I I was going to say, it's kind of like saying Fox won't, but if Fox didn't, you could still get it on all kinds of other CNN networks. Or something. CNN, CBS, ABC. Right. ABC. CNN, the, 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 big, the big three, CBS, those, those are the closest that we come. But even then, there's cable, there's internet, there's Twitter, there's whatever. You can, you can actually... It's, it's like every town had its one newspaper. Right. And a lot of those newspapers ran syndicated stories from the Hearst. Right, exactly. So Hearst, the closest thing I think actually is something that we run into, which is if Facebook, which everybody uses, won't let you, as, as, as has happened to Warhorn Media, yeah. because they don't like your politics or your religion or whatever, they, they will. Yeah, they start blackballing you and it's hard to be heard. It's hard to be heard, yeah, because. It doesn't matter how good. You yeah, know, what you do is or how insightful or what it has to say. 
if he, you can't actually get it out there to the people or if, if there's somebody sticking a big muffle in front you know muffling your voice every time you try to speak about it exactly and there there were gossip columnists it's a fascinating story the the lengths to which the Hearst organization went after Wells trying to discredit him with the FBI there's a story that Wells was warned by someone that there was a 14-year-old girl in a closet waiting for him with photographers and his ho- don't go back to your hotel room they 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 they're setting you up so there's all kinds of stories and then Wells really spent the rest of his career recovering from that and he never really recovered he did the magnificent ambersons with RKO which is considered a classic and he did a few other movies that were a classic but they were all compromised ambersons was famously by that time his contract his his wonderful two picture contract had been allowed to lapse and so Amberson, ambersons was recut and the footage was burned and it's like it is the holy grail of missing footage like the indiana jones story of you know, if we could just find the missing footage from the Magnificent Ambersons, that would be that would be a news story the world over still, I think. Probably doesn't exist. And so his movie, which could have been the equal of Citizen Kane, was compromised. And then he never really got movie after movie, story after story of him trying to get financing and venal Hollywood people not giving this genius the ability to actually express his vision so wells did other stuff but he basically just like kane fell from grace ended up being kind of a joke uh talk did the talk show circuit appeared on dean martin roasts you know just kind of cashed in on his celebrity went to europe to try and get financing would have these projects that he would do a little bit of and then they'd fall apart he was always larger than life always difficult to deal with result uh, stories vary as to whether he was a genius that was worth putting up with or he was just in fact a big fat trick um so his hubris fits his his movie yeah exactly he really is citizen kane in fact the famous scene where kane destroy demolishes the room you know like the climactic moment in the movie when susan alexander leaves him and he just smashes the room to pieces was based on an outburst that wells had already had at a mm. restaurant i think when he didn't get what he wanted or something like that and the writer was there and was just like oh well you know Orson, we've got to put this in the movie. So Wells was not completely unself-aware that he was doing something of a self-portrait. But then Wells accurately predicted the fact that these kinds of geniuses flame out and become selfish, old, (laughs) crazy men. So (laughs) (laughs) That's really weird um, and sad. It is weird. And like I say, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it's a bit of a mystery because there's so many different anecdotes and stories and takes and legends and outright myths and fabrications about the man. So that's Citizen Kane. That's Orson Welles. I guess we should talk a little bit about what actually makes Citizen Kane great because like many great achievements, it influenced things so much that you don't really, you can't actually, it's hard to see it until, unless you take a step back. So it came out in 41, didn't get a proper release. It became popular actually and became a critical darling in the 50s. RKO was one of the first studios to sell its library to TV, which means that people saw things like King Kong and Citizen Kane and the great RKO classics on TV first, Fred and Ginger. People became familiar with the movie that way. And just like uh, Wizard of Oz or what's the other famous one, the Christmas one? Um, it's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. It kind of had a second life as something that people discovered on television. And then some really influential critics just said, oh, wait a second, this is a great movie. And so it became, by the 60s, Wells, Wells did, luckily, I suppose, live to see the movie become embraced, become a 
classic and you know he knew that he knew he knew that when he died that he was the director of citizen kane the greatest movie of all time hmm. um and one of the last things that he's one of the last words that he's supposedly said was uh, ted turner was doing was colorizing everything and ted turner was trying to colorize citizen kane so supposedly some of orson welles last words were something like don't let mr turner take his crayons to my greatest creation <laughs> <laughs> you, have to, you have to imagine that in his orson welles voice or whatever you know um, ted turner another megalomaniac yeah exactly ted turner another citizen kane figure uh-huh. 20th century is full of them as is every century i suppose uh, that's what makes the movie special we could argue but taking a step back basically the movie didn't invent anything it just synthesized a lot of stuff in the same ways that star wars didn't invent special effects but it synthesized a whole bunch of techniques to make one really special movie that was really influential citizen kane took every technique that had been developed for sound films and for silent films put them together into one package so the things that you have to pay attention for if you want to sort of see that are the deep focus photography the just the style of photography was very influential if you notice the far background and the close foreground are both in focus and so it's not the director is not relying on cutting as so many hack terrible tv directors and even film directors unfortunately do today they just rely on they just get a bunch of footage and then they rely on editing to oh we're going to cut to the close up you know jake's saying something dramatic so we're going to cut to jake's face you know that's it's just really point and click predictable boring mm-hmm. doesn't take advantage of the visual sort of things that you can do to make a story dramatic Citizen Kane, it's all about composition and it's about lighting and it's about who's standing where and their where their eye lines pointing. And it's about all the different things that you can do, just like a painter to direct the eye to this or to that. And people will move or their eye line will shift and people will stand over the camera. It's it's just very, you know, without actually going through the movie shot by shot, it's a little hard to describe on a podcast, maybe, but just understand that there's a lot that's going on there in terms of Visual storytelling. Visual storytelling, mm-hmm. visual strategy. Like a lot of longer takes is one yeah. thing you're saying. A lot of longer takes. And that's not so common today. Not so common today. Well, what happened was it did become, if you watch movies after Citizen Kane, it was the kind of movie that no one had heard of, but that industry insiders had heard of and loved. And so it's pretty influential. That style of photography, deep focus. Use of shadow. Use of light. shadow, the expressionistic use of shadow. A lot of films in the 40s and 50s then were made like that. And then that style kind of died in the late 50s, 60s, 70s. Everything became more gritty, more flat. Uh, I especially don't like certain fi- the way certain 50s movies, because I love the way that Citizen Kane looks. Mm-hmm. Certain 50s movies can be very flat in their lighting and very, you could say, more realistic. But to me, I like the magic of you know this is theater it's still theater and i like it to be a little theater i like i've always Mm -hmm. enjoyed movies that are a little theatrical and stories that are a little theatrical in case anyone didn't know that from listening to sound of sanity and other things that we've done so there's that there's the use of sound which is nothing today i mean today sound the soundscape in any average blockbuster is very sophisticated but this movie was groundbreaking because i should say um i didn't maybe emphasize it enough wells came from radio with the mercury theater all those all the actors in the film are in fact radio and theater actors and so the way that they use their voices the way that sound is actually used to create an environment like for example when the reporter goes into mr thatcher's hall and you have these great echoes and everything Mm -hmm. like that that's 
much more sophisticated than what would have been done. The dialogue that overlaps, I think of the scene where they're singing the sa- the the Barker guy is singing that dumb song with the dancing girls. Yeah. You know, da, 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 he's Charlie Kane. And then you have Mr. Bernstein talking to the Joseph Cotton character, what's his name, Jedediah Leland. Mm-hmm. And there's all these different sounds that are overlaid and they're all kind of telling the story and there's champagne popping and there's Charlie Kane dancing in the background and interacting with the dancers and different things like that and it's just really sophisticated what they're doing and, and the and the dialogue that overlap people talking over each other which wasn't common because you know we'd only had 10 years 15 years maybe of sound technique at the time so it tended to be basic I mean we just our last movie was Dracula remember how stagey that was and how yeah. you know i am now saying my line the children of the night what yeah, music they may have a lot of gap it's going to be a lot of action and then cue up the one line that's right. going to be said in this <laughs> exactly now compare that to citizen kane and just see how amazingly more sophisticated it is and don't take that for granted it wasn't just because somebody realized oh we can talk faster into microphones it was because they had to develop techniques and technology and stuff to be able to actually do that kane is using a lot of radio techniques to 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 very sophisticated effect it's also famous for its special effects it is actually a special effects movie you might not know it because it's not creating another world like star wars so you're not stunned by it but actually there's a lot of like in the opera there's optical dissolves there's lighting techniques there's things used to create these environments on a relatively small budget the famous political rally is actually just a handful of actors matte paintings there's lighting effects that they're doing to make it look like he's in front of a big crowd but they never had any big crowds in this movie Uh, and if you actually pay attention you'll realize i never actually see a big crowd but if you don't pay attention you sure do feel a big crowd just simply because of special effects basically and sound design and you know we're gonna have a shot of Kane talking into a microphone and we're gonna feel like there's an audience around him but actually probably this was done on a tiny sound stage and the camera's positioned looking up so that we don't have to see that there's nothing else it's just it's just smoke and mirrors basically so this movie expanded the ideas of what you could do with special effects the kinds of stories you could tell using smoke and mirrors also just the use of montage you know we take that completely for granted now because we see so many movies or commercials or whatever that just use quick cuts from different oh now i'm in the i think i'll have a soda and then it just cuts to me drinking a soda you watch a lot of old movies it's like i think i'll have a soda and then the person we made fun of it on the booking when we watched the big sleep because uh humphrey bogart wants to make a phone call in that movie and so he goes to the phone booth he opens up the phone booth he gets Steps in inside puts in puts in his money waits for the operator the operator says what do you want to call where do you, and then he tells her and then they connect her it's like directors back then actually thought people needed all that connective tissue and maybe people did because they weren't used to film like we are but, but orson wells is being much more sophisticated and much more demanding of his audience and treating them much more intelligently by doing things like the famous breakfast table montage which tells the entire story of this marriage dissolving just with a few quick wipes between the couple at breakfast and some makeup effects and stuff like that so it's really cool actually what he did and dear listener if we were to watch the movie together i could just point out thing after thing after thing but i think it's a great movie it's a lot of fun for film buffs for that reason to pick out all those kinds of things but it's also just a really fun story it's really um, fun storytelling that's it's probably really, what that's probably what we're saying yeah it's, like, it's it's really fun storytelling just little 
moments like you know or even big moments like the one where they have the two newspapers ready to go on election night and the one is what Kane elected and then the other one is fraud at polls you know it's just a lot of really funny clever touches it's like you can tell a series this is why I get so tired of and I'll be I'll be done with this but this is a movie I'd be happy to just talk ad nauseum about Uh, this is why I get tired a lot of times when I watch modern blockbusters that have very basic dialogue very basic staging very basic emotions on display and it's not that i want to be a snob about some of this stuff you know i want to enjoy a good popcorn movie but it's just like what you can do with cinema is so limitless i love it when people are a little bit clever in how they tell a story because you can be and it's fun and it makes it more engaging and it draws you in and it makes the story more interesting and that's citizen kane well i'm glad you're done because we're here finally you you made us here with no trouble uh yeah Right, no trouble. All right, let's go. Let's go in. All right, here we are in the concession line. Jake, <laughs> Swedish fish, baby. Jake needs his Swedish fish, and I'm just gonna get a Coke, delicious Coke Zero. I, think. I want a giant bucket of popcorn. Warhorn <laughs> <laughs> Media is gonna pay for it. <laughs> That's right, buddy. Uh, well, why are we watching this movie? We're watching it because it is one of the widely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. Mm-hmm. We wanted to watch it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty and cool. And it's also just what happened about. to be sh- showing at the San Diego Movie Palace this month. We kind of have to go with what they're playing. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. So until they play something totally worthless, then we don't have to go at all. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe some some months they do, and we don't. But all right, cool. Well, uh, let's head into the movie, I guess, and we'll be back to talk more about Citizen Kane. Gold stud. Chip Everloving McGregory, otherwise known as Citizen Chip, a great man who left behind a great diversity of opinions about himself. Citizen Chip! Citizen Chip is important for every American citizen. It's their privilege, their their birthright, their... what? Oh, Citizen Chip! Citizen Chip! Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think? I think Citizen Chip was a lot smarter and richer and more charismatic than, uh... BJ, ha <laughs> Shut up, CJ! Why, yes, old Chip McGregory. Why, if I wasn't really his friend, then I don't know that he ever really had one, except in his possums, of course. So I suppose you could say that he loved all woodland creatures in general, but only because he wanted them to love him. Citizen Chip, possum farmer extraordinaire. Bleep bloop. I do not like possums. He used to give me $2,000 worth of gold bullion every Tuesday when he paid for his gasoline and donuts. I never thought he would turn out to be such a selfish monster. But I loved him anyway. Well, I tell you what, Mr. Bankerman, I don't know how to run a possum farm. I lost a million last year, and I expect to lose a million this year and next year, too. And at that rate, I'll have to shut her down. In 600 years! Citizen Chip Ever-Loving McGregory, a man who left us with one mysterious last word at his death. Gold stud. What did it mean? And was his prize possum pink eye really his? Pink Eye was my prize possum. It never did belong to Chip, but all Chip. He thought everything belonged to him. Thought the whole world belonged to him. Thought he could have it all for a bar of gold bullion and a smile. Gold stud? No, I've never heard of it before. Maybe it's the name of this gold stud he gave me when we were married. Oh, Chip. Chip. Huh? What? Gold stud? Maybe it was his gold-plated jet ski that sank in the watery depths of Lake Sanity. Gold stud. I do not know. Maybe it was the name of... A possum. Citizenship! <laughs> or, you know, maybe it was the name of his gold-plated yacht. 
You know, the one that sank in the watery depths of Lake Sanity. But death comes for all men, and now it has claimed Citizen Chip, just as it also claimed Pink Eye the Possum. Well, what do you think, Jake? Cute, what in the world are you trying to do? Chip's not dead. Jake, what in Jake, the- Jake, Jake. Come on, my friend. Get with my alt-reality uh, quote-unquote documentary. <laughs> it's so avant-garde. Okay, so you made a fake documentary about Chip McGregory so you could be avant-garde. That's a little bit cynical, isn't it, Pastor? <laughs> the point is to make great art. That's kind of the problem here. How did you even get that film of Stone, Huntington? I just hung out in the rapid fire studio closet. <laughs> How would you get any <laughs> film of Stone, Huntington? Right. I mean, I just wanted to see what he would say. It turns out that whole thing is just, it's kind of how he so talks. So does Stone know that he's in your movie? Not yet. Right. So I definitely think you should publish this and you should be sure to send a copy to Stone because he's going to give you some really good feedback about it. What? Really? Oh, <laughs> Well, thanks, Jake. Well, that means that Warhorn wants to publish it. That is great news. Uh, no, you you kind of burned your bridges with Warhorn, Q. So no, no way, no matter what, because it's just trash. Uh, wait, <laughs> wait a second. I'm getting mixed messages from you, buddy. Uh, were you being were you being sarcastic just a minute ago? Yes, you're excused, and so is your film reel, unless you'd like to leave it with me. What? Leave it with you? You don't even like it? What would you do My with it? My burn pile likes it. Uh, uh. <laughs> the fans are going to like it, Jake. My fans. Oh, my fans. They will like my brilliant avant-garde film. You are the greatest fool I've ever known, Q Sulcer. If it was anybody else, I'd say what's going to happen to you would be a lesson to you. Only you're going to need more than one lesson. And you're going to get more than one lesson. Oh, don't worry about me, Jake. Don't worry about me. I am Benjamin Q. Sulcer. <laughs> I'm no cheap, crooked pastor trying to save himself from the consequences of his inability to recognize genius. I'm Benjamin Q. Sulcer. All right, and here we are in Dinky's Diner. We got done watching the movie. We came over here to discuss it. I've got my caramel shake. I've got my chocolate malt. And I've got my chocolate shake. Was that Q Sulcer you were talking to in the parking lot? Uh, yeah, he uh, he cornered me with his. Was that a and, film projector? I and, saw that. Yeah, in a bed sheet, <laughs> stuck into the windows edges of his car. Mm-hmm. Got to give that guy points for trying, I guess, he, or maybe you don't. I but. don't <laughs> think I'm going to. It was pretty amazing. He he had uh, cut together a trailer for uh, for a little film project he's working on. Well, I hope people would understand that anything in that trailer wouldn't be canonical for for any kind of reality. Yeah, certainly not. I mean... Because that dude's cray. Yeah, cray cray. <laughs> yep. Yo. I'm glad he's gone. Well, speaking of great cinema, let's talk about Citizen Kane. Ben, what baggage did you bring to Citizen Kane? Have mm. you seen it before? Yeah, I'd seen it once before. I don't think I enjoyed it that much before. It was like, okay, uh, I could tell it was artsy-fartsy, and I knew it was a really important movie, but I just wasn't prepared to enjoy it. How, however long ago that was, probably at least 15 years, probably longer, but this time, I loved it. I thought it was great. It was loads of fun. The All the use that Orson Welles made of, you know, what a movie can do is great. It really shows up other movies for not trying very hard a lot of the time. Yeah, that's the thing about a great piece of anything, of, of, of art, is that it makes you dislike mediocre things a little bit more <laughs> yeah that's, <laughs> that's right. pretty um, handy for that 
you spend some time with Da Vinci, suddenly you don't really want to look at Thomas Kincaid quite as much. Quite as much. Quite as much. (laughs) (laughs) Jake, same question. I'd never seen it before, and I'm not really sure why. I think it just seemed like one of those movies that was supposed to be a classic that was probably artsy but was or something but was not much fun and it's called citizen kane and mm-hmm. not the most exciting title it's not very exciting and nobody had ever really made a case that it was worthwhile it was just like it's great period because it's great i really enjoyed it loved it immediately went back and rewatched certain scenes which is a pretty pretty rare thing to get for me to get done with a movie and want to have anything to do with it again for a while you know or to to really want to go back and instantly rewatch this scene rewatch the opening rewatch whatever scenes like that i think that's a pretty powerful testament to how good the film is it seems like the kind of movie that you know it was made for you go to the theater you watch it with your friends you're like oh man we gotta go see this again kind of thing yeah there's a lot to unpack in it even just the bric-a-brac of his life that accumulates over the movie and then it's all in that warehouse at the end Mm -hmm. you can have a lot of fun freeze framing and seeing all the different things from the different scenes that ended up in that you know it was so so often when we talk about um and when we've had opportunity to talk about classic movies what we've said is they had no idea that anybody would ever have opportunity to freeze frame that anybody would ever even see these movies again you know or multiple times or have access to them beyond their run in theaters like tv wasn't even really a thing and uh, certainly films being licensed for tv wasn't a thing and so that that idea was just a foreign concept so the thought that he put that much attention to detail Mm -hmm. in this film is really cool. Yeah, it's a movie that's really amazing. You almost have to see it really, more, than, more than once, like just to yeah, pick up on all the details. And I was having fun, like uh, during scene, you know, some of the scenes where the newspapers are spinning, and we get the the headlines of how great yeah how great Susan Alexander is at the theaters and how she's taken it all by storm. I was having a lot of fun trying to watch and catch the headlines of the subordinated articles and <laughs> one of them was like 20 people die in fire right. and, yeah, these little <laughs> or something like that i don't know i didn't go back and freeze frame that one but there was something like that that's hilarious i love that kind of attention to detail and what i think maybe somebody like wells understands he may have just done it because he's pretentious and artsy and he just wanted everything to be great right but there's a there's a a reality to the more attention you pay to detail in any story that you're telling and the more you care and you have it developed even on the back end in your mind that's not even told on on screen or in a book or on radio or whatever the more rich it's going to feel to the people watching it that aren't even noticing those details right it's just going to it sells it that much more feels that much more real and special it comes across whether they notice the detail specifically or not. I'm, th- I'm comparing it in my mind as you talk to the movie A Beautiful Mind, which is an okay movie that some of our listeners probably enjoy, but it's made by the extremely mediocre Ron, Ron Howard. Howard yeah. And I'm thinking about how that movie captures the character changing and then the passage of time. And basically what they do is they stick, what's his face, Russell Crowe, in some egregiously over-the-top old man makeup. And then at the end of the movie, you're supposed to accept that, oh, he's an old man. Citizen Kane does so much to delineate the passage of time and the way the character's yeah. changed. And 
to capture middle age, like some of mm-hmm. Wells's middle age makeup where he's just in his forties or whatever. It's almost And you wonder, is this a middle aged man that they somehow made look young? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or is this a young man that they made look? Yeah. He, and he almost yeah. looks like you just accept a lot of that stuff without even thinking about it, which is amazing. And I mean, still to this day, when I watch a new movie with all the technology that they, that they have, it can, it can be distracting with makeup and stuff, but it's subtle. I think, I think maybe the, key to that is a lot of that those effects are actually subtle and don't draw attention to themselves yeah. as flamboyant a showman as well as what was he knew when to sort of hold back and yeah and 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 that's where you know even establishing some of the expressionist shadow stuff stylistically was something that allowed him to to hide some of those stitches yeah you know it was like it was a smart artistic decision because of what it allowed him to do in various places with you know the passage of time with showing age with all that sort of stuff yep just really smart yeah well and I, the other thing i wanted to say about that you said you went back and watched scenes. there's two kinds of movies where i actually go back and i rewatch scenes generally speaking those would be musicals that have either really cool dance numbers or really cool songs that i want to rehear or action movies martial arts movies thing mm-hmm. like oh there's a really well choreographed or cool sequence that stands that in and of itself is so special it's a fun fight scene like, I just want to watch that yeah. again and even figure out how they did that and even see if you can see some of the seams or some of the strings or yeah you, it's almost better to watch it by it you, you want to watch the whole thing but then you're like I want to watch that by itself so that I can just kind of appreciate the beauty that went into what they did there and Citizen Kane is actually without any music or fight scenes or anything without anything like that it's still something that you, you want to go back and watch individual sequences to see what were, were the ideas that went into this how does it communicate what it's doing and it's mm-hmm. just it's really neat well guys yeah. let's let me get out the movie um timer here put it on the table and we are going to have some of our classic beloved movie battles no oh boy beginning with ben these are all randomly assigned we're going to do six yep. rounds we each have to each have uh, 60 seconds to argue our point and then we'll maybe do a little discussion so ben i'm going to have you argue for the for round one i'm gonna have you argue that citizen kane is an overrated film. Great. Good luck. Thanks. Jake, I'm going to have you argue that Citizen Kane is an underrated film. Good luck. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to have the greatest me. film of all time, the critics say everybody says. <laughs> and I'm going to argue underrated. I'm right. going to argue that it's just about perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly rated, you mean? Yeah, like yeah. it's it's appreciated exactly as much as it should be. Okay. So Ben, I'm going to have you argue that it's overrated. On your mark, get set, go. Well, this is a movie about a rich white guy, and it turns out he's selfish, and that's like the whole point of the movie. And so, I mean, don't you have better things to do with your life than watch a story about a selfish white rich person be selfish and kind of self-destruct? You probably do. You could watch, I don't know, watch, you could watch It's a Wonderful Life, which is more redemptive and like mm, weirder and more fantastical. You could watch any number of other things. You could watch The Godfather, which is a glimpse into, maybe it's common now, but it wasn't common at the time to have a glimpse into a real Italian mafia. There's a reason The Godfather is often put above Citizen Kane these days, and it should be. Um, Citizen Kane is just one pretentious guy's idea of what great cinema should be, and that's one reason it can have such a thin premise is because it's all about camera tricks, smoke and mirrors, fancy lighting, you know, <clears throat> over the top performances, makeup effects, this and that and this and that, nested flashbacks Time. and blah blah blah. That is the most common complaint about the movie and has been 
for a long time. You know, people will say, and a lot of the critics actually in the 40s that didn't like it, and then in the 50s when it was being reappraised and some people were resistant, they just said, there's no heart. It's, uh, so what's the takeaway? Yeah. How did it make you feel? What did it change? How did it, mm-hmm. like, what, what was actually good and worth moving about the story? Right. What did you, yeah, exactly. It makes um, you more of a film snob, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're a film snob, you can really appreciate it. But if you actually just want to, well, a perfect movie. I think we started with Casablanca. That was the first, it's a perfect comparison. It's often ranked number two or right up there. And that tells a story, you know? It's a melodrama that everybody can invest in that has relatable human feelings. You don't have to be a great man or understand great men to get into it. You just, if you've ever been in love or you've ever been jealous or you've ever had to fight evil in your life, which we all have one way or another sacrifice make a sacrifice you can relate to it and it's it may not be as sophisticated as Kane and it's filmmaking technique or storytelling technique but it's a story that everybody just loves so Ben you have accurately represented a bunch of idiots all um, right all right <laughs> Jake I am going to have you argue as we said that underrated underrated so good luck with that on your market set go Okay, well, it may be rated at the top of all the film critic lists or in the top three by the film critics, but in the popular imagination, it's a vastly underrated film. Not many people today have actually seen it or want to see it or feel like they should see it. And I was one of those people, and I just had all kinds of wrong impressions about what the movie was and how much fun it was going to be watching it. Like... There, there's a sense in which, you know, it's not an action-adventure film, but there's a reason why you compared it to that a few minutes ago. And it, there's something like, you know, Spielberg learned something from this oh, sure. this, this film. And uh, there's something fun and cool about it and that's really enjoyable. And a lot more people would like it if they just took the time to watch it. And so in the popular imagination, it deserves to be held up there with other just popcorn flicks. And it's not time. I don't need time. I made my case and I won. Yep. Gosh, that's a pretty good argument, actually. Mm-hmm. It's not like Ben didn't have a point. It is It is a, on some level a shallow movie. But, or is it? I don't know. All right, I'll try and argue that it's perfectly rated. One, two, three, go. I think it's perfectly rated. It's a movie that everybody loves. Even if people haven't seen it, they know it's a great movie. They know they should watch it. Sure, maybe some, maybe some rubes out there think it's homework. But they're wrong and if they watched it a lot of them i think would appreciate even if they didn't know exactly because they're not big film buffs they they they'd kind of get that something special was going on here and the critics love it and a thousand books have been written about it i mean does everybody have to read moby dick or know moby dick for us to just say that it's properly rated as one of the great novels i don't think so sure it'd be nice if more people watched it but you know people have lives and they have things to do and some people would just rather watch stranger things and that's okay but citizen kane for anyone that actually likes cinema is a great movie and everybody knows it and there's no question about it and very few people would try and argue otherwise it's one of the greatest maybe it's the top maybe it's not the top oh i'm out of time yeah yeah right right so well i think Jake and Nathan's points basically go together anyway. Right. And that leaves me. <laughs> well, Which I don't know that I, I, don't, I mean, I don't really agree with myself. Well, you have a good point. And the good point is that it's not actually telling a great story, it, but it's a story no. that's really well told and entertainingly told. Yeah. And yeah. That, I, it, that does, I think, in a sense, put it more in line with like a Spielbergian popcorn 
film than or a Beatles album. They don't the Beatles their lyrics don't say anything, but right. they boy do they say it well. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it, I mean plus it's it's portraiture. It's just it's it's like a character study, which is a different kind of thing. Yeah, well, I was kind of trying to preempt driven. that argument, but I was gonna your whole line of argument. There's a, there's something to it. I would also say that the, my the, my opener to my thing at the very beginning of this podcast is kind of my argument. It's a movie about a mystery, and if it solved that mystery completely, if it gave you the key then to who Kane was, nobody would care. That's right. The whole idea, mm-hmm. the whole point is for you to bring. I'm sorry if this sounds pretentious, but the whole point is actually for you to bring your idea of who Kane is and what Rosebud means and why Rosebud means what it means. And does Rosebud really sum up his life? We'll actually talk about that a little bit later. But that's it's part of the mystery. And it is actually the movie, I think, does touch something very significant about the mystery of men like Steve Jobs or Walt Disney and... I like to think about those men. I think it's yeah. interesting to read their biographies and or Winston Churchill. You know, what makes a great man? Why are so many great men such terrible people? These are questions worth asking. Yeah, it is. And, but but I think we're also, we, we didn't say this, but basically this movie is a story about storytelling. The whole framing story is this reporter right. trying to figure out who Kane is. It's a story about storytelling. How do you even come to understand people? And in one sense, because we notice the filmmaking so much, it's almost, it's not quite fair to say, but it's like a film about filmmaking. Yeah, I think Because so. the filmmaking is the star in one sense. So it is meta. Yeah, it's it is, Turtles it is Upon meta. Turtles. It's, yeah. it's, it's Orson Welles telling the story of Orson Welles, telling the story of Citizen Kane about the story of Citizen Kane. I mean, yeah. it, it is. And that's... That's going to put off some people. They're like, what is that movie even about? Like, but that doesn't make it this? shallow. That just no. means it asked questions that were bigger than what it was prepared to answer. And that's... That's the symbol. That's the famous moment where he walks past those mirrors and you have that wonderfully mysterious Mm -hmm. shot where it just goes back, back. Wells already told us that's what he was doing with a visual Mm -hmm. at the end, at the climax of his movie. You know, the last, I would argue, maybe the climactic moment of the movie is the old withered man with the snow globe walking past Mm -hmm. mirror upon mirror upon mirror image of himself. And it's kind of mysterious and it's kind of beautiful and it's, it is about storytelling I don't know how to talk non-pretentiously about it. You know, it's a movie yeah. about you know who we are, and yeah. I think you can make an argument that it is a movie about who Americans are. You know, it was supposed to be called The American, and it is about a media figure, and these are the people that define our lives. I basically do think Ben's argument is an interesting argument, but mm-hmm. also a wrong one. Yeah, if you need your art to tidy everything up and give you an easy moral, then. <clears throat> I guess Citizen Kane's not for you, but not all art has to do that, I don't think. All right, next question. Ben, I'm going to have you argue that it was good. You're going to basically going to argue for the auteur theory. The auteur theory is that, that yeah. it's the idea of a great genius, that one person, one singular voice should be in control of a film, isn't often in control yeah. of a film. Um, so you're going to argue that it was proper for them to give power to Wells, that it was it was good what they did. Good and, move, and right that's, move. Nathan, you're gonna argue, I'm gonna argue they never should have done that. That that was dumb, and you should not give that kind of power to a spoiled brat like Orson Welles. So cool. Ben, I'll let you argue that it was a good move. One, two, three, go. Well, the deal is that if you didn't give that power to a spoiled brat like Orson Welles, you don't get Citizen Kane. That's for sure, because Citizen Kane. I mean, we already talked in background about how there's plenty of anecdotes about how spoiled he really was and how kind of nuts so selfish and stuff he was 
Um, and it, I mean, it shows. It's it. It feels like the film, movie feels like a singular vision. People always strike back against auteur theory by noting how many other creative minds are involved in a movie, and that's fine. It's true. No one can deny that. But sometimes one guy gets to exert an inordinate amount of pressure and um, determine the course that other people's creativity runs to. And Orson Welles did, and the movie shows it. So it's 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 unified in a way that maybe other directors don't have the opportunity to do. And what's bad about that? You have Citizen Kane, so what's bad about that? Nothing. Well, you came in under time, and I will respond now. I don't know what to say about auteur theory. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it gives us Citizen Kane. Sometimes it gives us absolute trash, depending on who the visionary is and what period they are in their life. And it can go either way there. I wouldn't say there's necessarily anything intrinsically better about it being one director's vision over a Hollywood committee. Sometimes executives get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong, as we've discussed before on this show. As far as should they have given Wells the power that they gave him? Yeah, it got a Citizen Kane. It also destroyed Wells' life. And I don't know, should we let someone like that destroy himself? That was his life worth? It didn't just destroy his life. It also, as if that weren't bad enough, mm-hmm. it also <laughs> destroyed our opportunity to have any other truly lasting Wells stories. Yeah, exactly. Maybe if someone had been, all right, I'm out of time here, but we'll keep, we'll build on Jake's point. Maybe if someone had been asking him to tamp it down just a little bit, play nice, You know, if there'd been some collaboration, if there'd been some people that could have told Wells no while still supporting his vision, which is often how these things should work, you know, maybe they could have done something that would have been pretty great. Maybe Maybe we would have gotten a a less awesome, a slightly less awesome Citizen Kane. But we would have gotten- Maybe we would have gotten 10 or 12 or mm -hmm. 15 other really great films. And we would have, he would have had the trust to make Ambersons the way he wanted. He could have gotten Touch of Evil through. Maybe we would have had- Maybe so. Maybe by the end of his career, we would have had the film that makes Citizen Kane look silly. That is the number one all-time undisputed champion of films. Maybe. I mean, I'm... he made this when he was 24, 25. Yeah. Well, now now we're talking a matter of degrees, though. We're talking about like, oh, sure, give him control, but force him to shave off an edge here or there. Mm-hmm. I mean... Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's true. I don't know. I actually think we can't answer the question. Yeah, I think yeah. it's pretty hard. Plus, I've heard that a lot of Wells' other films might actually be masterpieces, even though no one... I've never seen them. And yeah, some of them are. Touch of Evil is a masterpiece. Amberson's, by, I've not seen, but by all accounts, okay. it's a masterpiece. Well, what about his Shakespeare? Because he did Othello and Falstaff. Uh, Chimes at Midnight is the name of at least one of his Shakespeare things. Or- it's supposed to be pretty great. Hmm. They're all compromised. None of them are what he wanted them to oh, be. okay. Maybe some of them were... You know, if we're going to argue for studio interference, maybe some of them were the better for it. Who knows? But none of them were what he actually wanted. I don't know what the answer. I mean, it's kind of like that. I think that's the mystery that Citizen Kane explores that we were just talking about, you know, the hubris and the American individualism and all that kind of stuff. And self-destructive. Yeah. When do you let a Steve Jobs just be a jerk and give us the future? And when do you tell Steve no? I don't know what the answer to that question is exactly. I suppose it varies from situation to situation, but... Well, yeah. we, we're, we're looking back on Citizen Kane like, hey, this is a great movie. We're glad we have it. If we'd actually cared about Orson Welles' soul, <laughs> we right. would have said something different to him at the His time. His life. Exactly. anything. Anything. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But these are the... See, see how meta it is. These are the it's very really questions today. that he was asking. All right, Ben... I'm going to have you argue. Oh, this is another Ben versus Nathan, it looks like. These are all chosen basically by random folks. Ben, you're going to argue that the movie's outlook, its worldview, our favorite word, is cynical. 
and I'm going to argue that it's sensible, that it's basically got a good worldview. Sure. And I'll let you go first. One, two, three, go. All right. Well, it's it's a cynical movie. What can you? I mean, it just it it starts with Citizen Kane dying all alone, and the rest of the movie is showing how, despite his you know bonhomie, his love of life, his ability to kind of win friends and influence people, he didn't have any friends. Not really. It was just a show, and it was just selfishness. And it just shows that it's easy to lie to ourselves and to leave people alienated and isolated, and to leave behind you know bitter words inside the there's the scene with the, the old man version of jed leland where jed says well i guess i was kind of his friend basically but jed just continually expresses how much he despised him and so the movie is just about that it's about how you try to you try to create yourself you try to build your own brand you try to be a success and you just end up lying to yourself and the other characters i don't know they don't seem that happy leland isn't that happy the uh, was it bernstein whatever his name is um time He's not that happy. Well, bottom line, what I hear you arguing, Ben, is it's a movie about a power-hungry megalomaniac who dies alone. And it basically says this is, and if it's going to be called The American, that's what it says. So it says we are what it says everybody is. You can't really know somebody, but we're all just selfish idiots. Yep. And so it's just a cynical statement about human nature and about the world and about the world we live in and about the forces that drive it. Right, because if it was just a... If all you were saying is it's a story of a megalomaniacal jerk that dies alone, it's like, well, we know that that does yeah, happen yeah, in yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. But if it's actually saying that's who we are, then that's... Yeah, that's who we so are, that's the way the world argue. works, and, mm-hmm. that's, right. and it's, that's just it. That's it. Let's just put out there. All right, I'll argue against that. One, two, three, go. I don't think that the movie is completely arguing that, though. I think there are a lot of really nice grace notes for the other characters. Just little moments like uh, that wonderful speech that Mr. Bernstein gives about the girl with the white parasol that he's never forgotten. I mean, who cares about that? That's just a... Who cares? But who cares about Bernstein as anything but uh, Kane's flunky? But the movie actually does. It gives him a nice little moment with the rain coming down talking about a moment that's reson- resonates with me when I think about the things that I will never forget that meant something just symbolized something in my life or the moment where Susan Alexander says to the reporter you come around and tell me your story sometime you know you can't tell me that the movie doesn't have some sympathy for her washed up old and sort of tragic and so I just think you know there are some like Jed Leland that do seem a little bit more caricaturish by the end but it feels to me like the movie has some real sympathy for its characters and for Kane, too. I'm going past my time here, but just to finish the argument, when you think about Rosebud and what it does say about Kane, when you think about his mother and his father and everything that we can read between the lines about them, uh, when you think about this young man that starts as a socialist radical and then withers into old decay, you know, I think the movie shows him for the monster that he is shows how difficult it would be to be and how difficult it is by all accounts to be around the steve Jobses and the people like that but you know it has some sympathy for him i think yeah uh, i I think the other way that you could uh come at the whole question is just when you consider that wells was making a movie essentially about william randolph hearst Mm -hmm. that was a takedown film you could and that he got a huge amount of flack for and a lot of resistance for you could say that you could argue that the whole existence of the film was a hopeful thing in and of itself. Right. Because 
it's an attempt to affect change in its own way. It's an attempt to, it's its own expose right? in dramatic fashion. And why would you do that? Why would you put yourself through that? Why would you tell that kind of story? Why would you take that kind of risk if you weren't ultimately hopeful about it affecting some kind of change, if it was just a cynical statement of this is the way things are and the way things will always be? And certainly William Randolph Hearst saw it as a threat. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, not as a just a, a statement of resignation. Yeah. And so you could you could really argue that, you know, Wells was actually trying to do something with this. And thing, he and won. That makes it not cynical. I, I read or checked out from, I don't know, remember, I don't think I actually read it, but I've seen a book, like the biography of Hearst. What do you, what do you think it's called? Citizen Hearst. Citizen Hearst, hmm. of course. Wells, if won the battle against Hearst. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one, he, he won the long-term battle, you know, no one remembers Hearst as anything but a villain now. And people are on, well, you know, fake news, evil media, whatever. But we all have a category of thinking about media, about the Ted Turners and the Rupert Murdochs and even the Steve Jobs that Wells in part gave us. So he helped Mm -hmm. us understand the 20th century. He helped us understand the 21st. You know, not to overstate the case, but I think the movie actually did do some some real work in in its little movie way for people and the way that we think about these things. And so... Yeah, the movie's pretty cynical. That's part of its charm. Yeah, that's um, right. That's part of its charm. It, but but you're right. It is hopeful. I mean, it does have some tenderness for Kane. Yeah, and I think especially for Susan Alexander, she's a pretty. I mean, I know she's a screechy nightclub singer by the end, but I felt some sympathy for her. Yeah, definitely. And for Mr. Bernstein, those two in particular, the movie seems to like, or at least I like. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And. You know, there's just, there's some tender stuff. The scene with the toothache, I mean, I know it's in a scene of adultery, basically, but there are some very human, nice moments in between all the grandstanding and the big dramatic gestures and the mm-hmm. the breakdown of the relationship between Wells and Cotton. You know, he finishes the thing and Mr. Bernstein says, I guess that sure showed you or whatever. And then <laughs> that wonderful use of sound. Here's an example of the movie's great sound where he says, you're fired. And then he hits the typewriter and it adds punctuation by just um, chink. (laughs) Like it's cutting off Leland's head or something like that. It's just a beautiful radio. That's exactly what a radio person would think to do with the sound there. Just a very simple example. But be that as it may, it seems like there's some real real sympathy for the characters and some, some tender moments there. Ben? You came up a lot in this one. I did, yeah, wow. You, you, uh, you are going to argue that Rosebud is, in fact, what it purports to be. It is the key to understanding Citizen Kane and understanding what the movie's trying to do, perhaps, as well. Jake, you're going to argue that, as many people who have agreed with the point that Ben was making in our first movie fight, that the movie's basically shallow and doesn't have anything to say, they say Rosebud's just a MacGuffin, and it's, what does it ultimately prove about anything? You're going to argue that point of view. Okay. Um, so, Ben... You have the pleasure of getting to go first on most of these. Yay. Yay. One, two, three, go. Well, Rosebud is key to the movie and key to the character of Citizen Kane. It's it's what starts the movie, and it's what drives the question, who is this guy? What is Rosebud? Is, is, is the newspaper's way into understanding who this person is. And it's just a way of talking about how we are mysteries to other people, maybe even to ourselves, ultimately. 
So it doesn't matter. It's saying it's a MacGuffin is like saying a symbol is just a symbol. I mean, what's what's the symbol actually doing? Well, what's a MacGuffin actually doing? In this movie, it's doing more than just like, I don't know, save the world from this nuclear device by whatever. It's, it's not just a plot device. It is like a symbol of Cain himself. And whatever made him the man he became and what he really wanted. What did he really want? People want to know. And the movie's trying to teach you to just understand human nature's like that. And it also works on a plot level as a way of giving you sympathy for Citizen Kane and, and some understanding maybe of what actually did drive him as a character. So, time. Oh, there you go. That was a pretty good argument. All right, Jake, I'll let you make the rebuttal. One, two, three, go. It is a symbol. It is a MacGuffin. MacGuffin's not a bad thing to have in a film, a, a, a thing that we're chasing. Um, it's just a really stupid one to make symbolic of a man's life. It's silly. It's trite. His childhood sled that from this childhood that was terrible, where he grew up in poverty and was abused by his alcoholic father. That's the symbol that we're going to be following throughout this whole movie. And all these reporters are going to think, you know, Rose, this is the key to unlocking this man's character. I, I grant that it was a great, it was a plot device that the whole movie wrapped itself around. That's a silly I don't know why we had to make that point because that's the truth. I just think it's a silly one. It's a, it's a, in a in kind of a foolish way to try to get insight into a person's time character. <laughs> Do I need to try that again? Yeah. That's good. That's, that's good. Was, yeah, that's good. That's the best I could come up with. Yeah. <laughs> well, you made a good argument, Ben. I didn't know yeah. how else to. In, I think I insofar think as people want it to actually explain Kane, yeah, it doesn't. How how could anything? But I think I think Ben cut your legs out from under you by making the point that who cares? The 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 entire point is that it doesn't explain him. That it sort right. of does and it sort of doesn't. It sort of does. It sort of doesn't. Yeah. And also, it goes up in smoke because it's those. It's a story of the fact that there's these untouchable things about people that we actually can't mm-hmm. can't get to. And if we did know that it was his sled, what does that tell us? When you know, I mean, I think the movie's aware of the fact that well, his childhood sucked. Like what? What was he actually clinging on to? Why did he grab that snow globe? We still don't, we know that it meant something to him and we could say lost innocence, but what lost innocence? So it's like. Yeah, I mean, I just assumed and maybe I go too far in my interpretation, but that it just means he, he's just thinking of that last moment he had with his mom and dad. That's what he's, I mean, I think that's 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 the 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 natural interpretation is he spent his whole life looking for love, the love that was taken from him in the last moment where he knew it was that snowy day when he was out sledding. Yeah. And so the snow globe and the sled represent the lost love that he was seeking for his whole life. Yeah. And it's, it's simple enough. It's simple. It's simple. I mean, maybe it is a little goofy to have him think of the name of his sled, but it it works fine. Yeah, it's a kind of shorthand, It's not even the name of his sled. It's the manufacturer of his sled. Was it really? It's the company that was the company's logo. It wasn't like the kid painted the name on it. It was a factory logo or something. (laughs) I didn't even think about that, but yeah, duh. It's like Red Rider. Right, of course, of course. Radio Flyer. Or that's what, and probably because it's a manufacturer, probably there are lots of other sleds that, I don't know. Have that on it? Yeah. That would make sense. Well, I think it's- Why uh, would you name your sled Rosebud? I have no idea. It's the name well, of the company. Yeah. I tell that story, I suppose. Maybe huh? I'll cut this out. But the 
story about oh. why they named it Rosebud is because it was a nice jab at <laughs> William Randolph Hearst um, because that was his nickname for something about Marion Davies, his lover, something rather private. And so they stole it and used it for the sled, which if they did, then that's a good argument for how truly cynical and nasty this movie <laughs> actually was. Yeah. But, and how much they were, Wells was just courting disaster by spitting in the face of this super powerful man. So anyway, I think Rosebud's a great symbol. It, it is as simple as you guys say. I think it's also as complicated as I say, and that's what makes a great simple. A symbol is it, it on, on one level, it, it explains everything. On another level, it explains absolutely nothing. nothing. Yeah. And that's what you want. That's beautiful. That's a, I think it works, yeah. And it is, it is also, it's shorthand. The movie is two hours long. It tells this incredibly epic story, and it has to take shortcuts. It takes, it's a whole movie full of shortcuts, and that's the biggest one. We're not going to see this whole marriage. We're just going to see them eating breakfast together. You know, I could go through. We're not going to see the passage of yeah, time. Yeah, but to get back into the character, the, the argument, I was like, couldn't we have picked something better than a split? No, it's classic, and you're not, allowed, <laughs> you're, not, you're not allowed to dislike it. It's Rosebud. It's one of the most famous things from movies. Maybe it feels a little hack now, but I think that's what one where we just have to go back and say, it was good. It was good. I do not accept any arguments against it. <laughs> <clears throat> The official position of Sound of Sanity is that Rosebud's great. I just thought it was worth exploring, but apparently it's not. <laughs> yeah, they probably It was an be... interesting point I brought up in that little worth devil's advocate. Yeah. <laughs> you make an interesting point, devil. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, I didn't think so. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. I like the snow globe. I like, I like they can tie different things to it. See, it works. Whatever mm-hmm. else you want to say about it, it, it basically work. works. J- Jake, I'm going to have you argue that this movie is basically a popular film that it should be approached as a piece of popular entertainment. And I'm going to argue that it is an art house film and should be approached as such. So this is sort of hearkening back to our other arguments and the thing that I already said, which is it's kind of, you can should be classed with the, I'm just going to keep saying, making that argument over again. Then, yeah. build, build on the case that you made. One, two, three, go. Well, it's just a fun film. And it is enjoyable top to bottom. And it it's it really doesn't have that. It's a mystery. Um, it doesn't really have that big of a takeaway. It's not that, you know, emotionally impacting of a film. It's the kind of film you actually could on a Friday night say, hey, I don't want to watch something fun. Let's watch Citizen Kane and have a lot of fun with it. And in that sense, it's just in the tradition of a good popcorn film, mystery film that tells a superficial story in a compelling way, asks a, a, a profound question that's also simple and kind of simplistic and it's, you know, how it deals with it and processes it. And that's what, you know, a lot of good pop films do is they entertain you for a couple hours or, you know, and they're fun and they're engaging and they're funny. And, you know, and, and that's all this film really is. It's a really well done film that's fun and engaging and funny. Time. And isn't really trying to do too much. All right. I will attempt to argue against that. I think we can tell whether it's a popular film or not by whether you've actually seen it. Because I think you've seen Wizard of Oz and you've seen It's a Wonderful Life. And the movies that actually were popular entertainments that deserve to last as such have, by and large. People actually do still watch. A lot more people have seen Casablanca, I submit to you, probably, than Citizen Kane, because it actually is kind of an art house film. It's a movie that depends on your appreciation for technique and for what it's doing cinematically. You can't actually just watch this the same way that you watch Captain America. I'm not sure that people actually will be 
as entertained by it if they don't know their way around it, know their way around film a little bit. So, yeah, there's my argument. The fact is, most pop films actually do tell a really engaging story Mm -hmm. and they're not concerned about the details and they just rely on the emotional hooks. That would be why Casablanca would get more views than than this film. I mean... But I don't agree with my argument at all. I agree with your argument, I think. <laughs> I really? I think I'd, yeah, I mean. Should we have swapped roles maybe? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I think what we're trying to do is raise people's, I mean, game kind of. Like part of the point of this entire episode about Citizen Kane is to get people to understand enough that they can actually enjoy it, which shows that a little more context is required than for most pop movies, which you can just jump into. Yeah, a little I, I think there's... there's but, but what's great about Citizen Kane is I really don't think you have to be that sophisticated mm-hmm. to enjoy it. I think you mm. can be a total cinephile yeah. and geek out over every scene and the details in every scene and camera angle and depth of focus and... and Lighting, um, et cetera. Lighting and sound yeah. and sound... All that stuff. Or you can just sit back and on a really superficial level, just enjoy a fun, funny film that's engaging. And you know what Wells does brilliantly here is he tells a fun, funny, engaging story with an incredible amount of artistry. And that's the kind of thing mm-hmm. that we tend to prize. It's like, what's what's better about Spielberg than any of the other, you know, kind of action filmmakers of the 80s it's just he was just that much more a lot of it's artistic technique yeah it's just uh yeah his use of technique the the artistry that went into the composition of his shots and the techniques that he was using was just that much better and so but he but he put all of those tools to use to make blockbusters instead of pretentious art house films and it's a false bifurcation to say that style and substance can really be taken apart. I mean, they can to some degree, but Citizen Kane is entertaining and engaging as a story precisely because its technique is so good. And the same thing can be said of Spielberg, as you just were, Mm -hmm. of any of the great entertainers or master painters or anybody else. You have great technique. It actually ends up drawing people in. I would argue that a lot of what we think of as arty and pretentious stuff that has quote-unquote bad stories also actually has bad technique. Bad style. If your right. style is such that it's rejecting people, that it's turning them off, that it's making them not care about the story. Then you're not a good storyteller. You're not, and, and you're not a good stylist. Yeah, sure. There's certain things that you need to have more knowledge going into. And Citizen Kane probably in some to some degree is one of them that benefits from knowing about at least some things, you know, knowing a little bit about Hearst and 20th century history at the very least. But anybody at the time would have known. Oh, sure, yeah. And I think everybody now has enough context even mm-hmm. to, to enjoy the movie on some level and just enjoy a well-told story. So I, I, I think there's things to be said for both of our arguments, but ultimately I side with Jake that this mm. just is an entertaining film. Yeah. You could show it to just about anybody and I think if they're open, you know, if they're not one of those people that just... It's in black and white I and can't, it's old, therefore I, won't, I don't like it. Yep. Well, one thing that I think I've noticed is that a lot of people, as we've watched movies with you, Jake, and with Brandon for the booking, and sometimes the old black and white movies, I, because I've watched a lot of them over my life and kind of am a film buff, I won't have any trouble just adjusting to the style. And sometimes you guys will, and no offense, have a little bit more trouble just like with Frankenstein or something, entering into an old-fashioned type of style. 
I submit to you that Citizen Kane doesn't really have that problem because it's so cool and engaging what it's doing. Yeah. It just feels, for lack of a better word, modern. It feels it does, yeah. like minus the black and white and some of the dodgy. It feels like effects. somebody smart today could have done this movie in black and white mm-hmm. on purpose. Right. Yeah. With some obvious matte paintings of the house of, of uh, Xanadu. And it still would right. be cool and right. fun. Yeah. All right. Final argument. Ben, you're going to argue that the movie, or no, you're going to argue that Kane himself is a good man. Good luck with that. Good luck. <laughs> Again, all assigned random. I'm going to argue that <laughs> he was a bad grade. man. <laughs> <laughs> and Jake, you're going to argue that he's a complicated man. <laughs> I wonder who's going to win. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, Great. All right, Ben. I wonder who's going to lose. <laughs> Do you really? <laughs> yeah. There's at least one person that I think is going to have some trouble. Uh, I don't know who. One, two, three, go. Well, Citizen Kane is a good man. I mean, yeah, he's flawed and stuff, but... Stop stop snickering. He's he's flawed. I'm not saying he's not flawed and doesn't do some bad things, but he's a good man overall. He's just trying to um he's <laughs> this is so dumb. He's just trying to advocate for what he believes in for his socialist politics. He's he's you know he's he's he's, he's just t- Oh man, what is he doing? You can maybe know. argue that. No, look, you can argue that okay. he's that he's a he's a damaged person yeah. who is something of an idealist. Yeah. And that he's yeah, you know, he was looking for to be loved by people and he wanted to impose his vision on the world, but that's because he actually in his, his twisted way believed his vision was best. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to take down the the bankers and the you know because he thought they were villains and he was willing to use the paper to do it and he wanted to you know you can you can make the case that you know he was a very misguided broken person trying to change the world with the means that he had and he did change the world with the means that he had but you know fact is he had an abusive alcoholic dad and he was taken away from his family and was raised in a boarding school under the guidance of this rich banker like what do you want from him Ah, I think that was very good. I'm going to let that stand as my statement right okay, there. Okay, great. I'm going to make Thanks, the counter Jake. argument now. <laughs> All right. Uh, one, two, three, go. Oh, boo-hoo. He had a bad dad. So did lots of people. You're still responsible for their actions. Oh, maybe you could maybe kind of argue that socialist radical Kane, when he's about 25, when he says, you know, for 60 years, that Kane maybe is a good guy. But even then, he's mistreating his employees. He's driving them nuts. He's reprinting the paper a thousand times. He's using big splits flashy headlines. He's stealing the best staff in the world. He's self-aggrandizing. He has somebody write a song. I think maybe we get the impression that he wrote that song. Charlie Kane. Um, His friends that know him best don't like him. He, He... Jed sends him the Declaration of Principles when he's older and he tears it up for crying out loud. He he abandons, whether you agree with his socialist principles or not is another question, but even if you do, he completely abandons them. He cheats on his wife, tries to force, just have this almost Fifty Shades relationship with this poor opera singer lady who he's just like forcing to be into his cookie cutter. And then he dies all alone because nobody actually loved him. And because he was a terrible person. And the person that was there with him was that shifty butler that is obviously stealing from him. So yeah, great, great guy, Citizen Kane. That's my argument. Hmm. (laughs) All right, Jake, I'll let you argue without any further crosstalk. I think we can go straight to you for the it's complicated argument. Go. Well, 
fact is it is complicated and that's what makes the movie interesting and compelling and why we have to have the story of Cain told from so many different angles. The movie is sympathetic to him in its way and he is a broken man with a broken childhood and this weird situation foisted upon him where he's, you know, this abused, impoverished kid who suddenly comes into being one of the top, what, six wealthiest people in the world. Mm -hmm. And how's he going to deal with all of that? Well, you know, he does what he does. And yeah, he's a wicked, terrible person, an awful person most of the way and most of the time. And yet you have these little grace notes that say, you know, he was trying to do some things. The... I don't think if the, if the movie was straight up the story of a villain and didn't leave some gray and have the ability to step for people to step back and say, well, it was complicated. Time, but go ahead. Then it wouldn't last and it wouldn't be considered one of the great films. Part of you know what it's doing is saying we're all complicated in our own ways. And even even the, the greatest villain you know, of the 20th century, William Randolph Hearst is complicated in his way. There's the part, part there's just little moments even later in his life when he he fires Jed and then he sends Jed a check for $50,000 or whatever, whatever, yeah, whatever he, amount it would have been. he refuses to amount of defend money. or explain himself. Right. You know, and, you know, he, he, he writes out the, the article and. Yeah. Out of some twisted. Uh, desire know, to tell the truth. Yeah. Like. It, I'm a truth teller and that's what I do. And, you know, and Jed's making fun of him and saying, oh, you know, he had to make a show of, of really believing and showing everybody that he's a truth teller. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's yeah. going to do what he wants. It's interesting how nasty Jed comes across as an old man. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 Given how he's sort of the voice of, he's sort of the conscience of young Kane, but not. He's just bitter. He's just bitter end. by the end. Yeah. In a way that Kane doesn't seem to, Kane seems more sad than bitter about Jed. Right. <sighs> well, that's Citizen Kane. Ben, should, should people watch Citizen Kane? Yep, they should watch it. Good movie. Jake? Yep. I agree. It's worth watching one of the greatest movies of all time. This reason is at the top of the li- of the list. Mm-hmm. And it's just a really fun movie. And I it's think. fun. Yeah, it it's actually enjoyable. It's not one of those films that you're like, oh, this is a m- movie I have to watch for reasons with a capital R. Yep. yep. I, ha- I will go ahead and admit I love Casablanca. It's one of my favorite movies for a long time. I might have said it was my was my favorite movie. Maybe I still would. But this one was a lot more fun to go back to. Yeah. I have to say it's so much faster and just more modern feeling. And you don't have to sort of sit there while two lovers figure things out, you know, in the later sections. It's just a fun movie. So. Yep. I like it better. It's one of one of the movies I've had the most fun watching and talking about on Sound of Sanity so far, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Minus Solo, of course. Well, of course. Did you have to say that? (laughs) It's a given, man. That goes without saying. Ron Howard, baby. Uh, Sound of Sanity was produced by me, executive produced by Jake and me, engineered by Ben. Go, hey, go to patreon.com forward slash Sound of Sanity to support us. Please do that today. There's all kind of cool stuff. And thank you for listening. Until next time, Rosebud.